Episode 25 of If These Walls, Nebuchadnezzar, I hardly know her, is best paired with a Farida Lager and the song Babylon by David Gray. Do you remember when I sent you that delightful picture of my butt in my new pants? Mm-hmm. I sent that to about seven people. Good. Why? Because it looked great. And it's just a shame that I'm getting all of these. First off, my butt is juicier than it's ever been. And I have all these great stretchy work pants. No one ever sees them. You see me from shoulder up. And I have these big old headphones, so I can't even wear earrings. I really, I just have to find more ways to center my butt in conversation so that I can definitely with the world. Yeah. You're going to want to lead with the butt. Walking to the club, butt first. Uh, but first conversation. Hi, I'm Elena. <laughs> and I'm Audrey, coming to you live from the farm upstate where your childhood dog went to live oh so many years ago. Pickles says hello. Pickles. And this is If These Walls, a podcast where we talk about the most famous and infamous buildings and places in history. What happened there, why it happened, and what secrets those places hold. And as we like to say, blah, blah. Blah, because I didn't rewrite the intro. Stop, ta, ta, talking that. Blah, blah, blah. We stand Kesha on this podcast. Kesha Stan, do not stand Spring Awakening, which is also what gets in my head when I see blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, you're fucked, all right. Yeah. See what I did there? See what I did there? Totally <laughs> fucked. Uh, that was part of the advent of what was Spring Awakening? 2007? Was that the 2007 Tonys? Yes. And I'm not talking about the latest version, which I hear I would like a lot better. Oh, the Michael Arden directed yes. version? Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely fantastic. I have had the honor and joy and pleasure of meeting Ali Stroker, who was in that production. And I, I want to, and I just recently saw Krista Rodriguez. I've seen a lot of tangential, um, I've had tangential experiences with members of that cast. Also seen Andy Mantis in different places. Well, aren't you so fancy and important? I miss the theater. <laughs> uh, yeah, we all do. Yeah, but we're all moving on to this virtual space. And that's something I want to give a shout out to people who maybe are listening to us for the first time, maybe exploring podcast options um, in a new way since we all have time and are running out of Netflix content. It is true that the theater is the theater is the theater and should take place in a theater on a stage. However, unlike the beginning of this COVID pandemic experience when it was just a lot of really quick, let's move a reading onto Zoom, um, you can't keep an artist down. They Theater makers are pivoting quickly and there's this advent of radio theater via podcast that's happening. A lot of people... I work in the theater industry and help fundraise for theater artists. Um, a lot of people are looking into podcasting equipment right now. So we're seeing a new sort of advent of storytelling that honestly, I think might bring us to a place of once we're ready to go back into actual theaters, people are going to be ready for that content again. It doesn't, not, not knocking Michael Bay, but not everything has to be a base explosion. No. Yeah. I'm very interested in the way that it's evolving as well. Um, there are some great resources, uh, and I think they're calling it the No Pro Theater Movement, right? No Proscenium. So I love it's that. I've so not heard that specifically. And there are other mediums besides podcasts and spoken word that theater is moving to. I've seen some theater by mail experiences, which uh, I have not personally had myself, but I liken it to like a you know how they have like a hunter hunt a killer thing now where yeah. you can send away for a pack. It's similar to that. So you get the story that is physically mailed to you and you take in that content and then you request the next version to be mailed to you too. It's very, it's like a little old fashioned. It's, it's like what you would like send away for in the back of your Archie comics when you were a kid, yeah. but now it's like theater that has nowhere else to perform except in your own living room. What's the performative aspect? Like there's the storytelling, but is it like scripts or are you involved in it? I mean, I don't quite know. You know what my I'm favorite medium without, is? What? 
Patricia Arquette. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. But most importantly, I waited so patiently to say it and I didn't did. interrupt you at all. You did. Yeah. Yeah. Storytelling is coming back and I live. <laughs> Can I shout out? So I do have a quick anecdote I want to give. But before I do that, I have to shout out the church that I grew up in. Shout out. Shout Good. out to Jesus. So appropriate for today's topic. Go ahead. Good Hope Lutheran Church in Youngstown, Ohio. Well, Boardman, Ohio. But, um, and I'll get to this in one second, but uh, I attended a funeral. Uh, the funeral was in person because it's a close family member. Um, but uh, they have, talk about like switching your, like learning what you need to do to change in during COVID times and making it happen quickly, they have moved <laughs> online to an online platform to stream all their services. It's so well done. So, so we had family members obviously that couldn't attend because of COVID and everything's awful. Um, but they said that watching the live stream of the service was like being there. And then I was at home with my mom yesterday and she asked me to watch the Sunday service with her. Same thing. So impressed all the words on the screen. And this is a, this like, not to, she would be mad if she heard this, but this is a church that is like the median age there right now is probably 60 years old. Like they're not a tech savvy crew, but holy crap. Have they really like thrown down? Well, and to, uh, and to be fair to your mother, we do know that she is in fact 35, despite your 72 years of age. It was a time warp Yep, that gifted That's us with you. Yeah. So Shout out to, oh my God, what, Cynthia. Shout Cynthia. out to Cynthia. It's like, I know your mother's name. Um, but go uh, going along with that. So I, we don't need to share like incredibly personal things on this podcast like we did on our previous podcast that doesn't exist. Never but did. I did, I never did. But I did want to say um, a quick note since we do call ourselves a history podcast. <laughs> um so what I love about history is like how it is cared for, how it is passed from person to person, whether that is through storytelling, which we endeavor to do on this podcast, or um, from passing actual physical objects down uh, through the ages. Um, and those that care for that history and care well for it are the people that are, and I'm not saying that we are these people, we kind of, you know. We try, we aspire to be, but oh, they're, I'm, I'm these people. I am <laughs> they, the folkiest of the lore. I'm the loriest of the folk. <laughs> um, the people that pass it down and that care for it are stewards of the stories of our past. And they are responsible for the passage of those stories into our futures so that we don't forget them. Um, so the funeral I attended, um, my ex- my extremely beloved stepfather passed away um, a week and a half ago. And this is someone who I've known since I was eight years old. And he's a father in every sense of the word. Um, and he, I just wanted to mention him on the podcast because he is a true custodian of history. And I don't think that really set in for me until he passed. Um, so he loved and collected um, dragsters and motorcycles and antique cars. And he cared for them in such a way that you could really sense his love of history. I mean, the way he cared for everything, you can tell how much he loved you, whether it was a person or, or a piece of history. Um, he actually, his like weird quirk is that he acquired and restored um, agricultural and industrial internal combustion engines and he displayed them with great pride. So these are things that would like power, uh, I don't know, like all these important turn of the century engines that would like were the beginning of the industrial revolution that would power all these um, machines that we kind of take for granted and don't probably didn't really think about much. Um, and so he was, he would purchase them and restore them and, enjoy them and play with them and show them at fairs and show them in places. And then he would pass them along and he would sell them to the next person. And he's just like ushering the history on. And he is such a, he's just such a steward of important 
things that maybe the rest of us don't really consider that much. And I really love and respect him for it. I mean, he was just like the man loved to clean house. The man loved to clean everything. His garage where he displayed all these things. Well, he had two of them, but it was pristine. It was like walking into a museum and I don't know. I just think, think of the people that are passing down the history that you don't even think of. And that was him. And now I'm going to go cry. (laughs) No, that was the specificity of what, here's the two ways that brought me joy. The specificity of what he was interested in. And if not him, who was going to carry on the history of turn of the century combustion engines for farming (laughs) equipment? It's it's not not necessary, but who picked that? Right. He did. He did. Yeah. And also it's I think it's such a vouch for anything that you're truly interested in is worth investing your mind into. Mm-hmm. Even to the point of I mean, he he has uh, like a Harley Davidson from the 30s that's on loan to him. And it's on loan to him from a museum that's in Nashville. And it's still in the garage, and I assume it will now go back to the museum. But just the fact, God, surround yourself with the stuff that you love, because even if it's something that no one else loves, your love of that can spread onto others or can inspire others in a way you might not think of. Like, who would think of, oh my God, I love motorcycles so much, I want to surround myself with them, I'm going to, uh, you know, invest in them and spend all this time. It's just... Find what you love and put your energy into it. <laughs> I don't know. That's not exciting. That didn't, that's dumb. Don't let's cut that. No, I love it. You know what I love is that that particular colloquialism ends eight different ways. And you said, mine, I'm going to pick a new, <laughs> trotting a new path here. And that, I mean, ties in very well with what we're talking about today. It's about legacy and storytelling and continuing on who lives, who dies, who tells your story. What's that from? I believe Annie, get your gun. Oh, God. I love that musical. Oh, my God. Reba, are you kidding me? No idea. No, that song actually was written in to replace the original song, I'm an Indian, too. Um. (laughs) <laughs> and if you haven't heard it, don't, um, <laughs> it, is, it is as, as, uh, I was talking about this with my mother. Cause I was in a production of Anna, get your gun as, as, as a wee young thing. And that song was, she said, well, it was an opportunity for other people to get on stage and do things I'm like it's an opportunity for brown faces. What it is. It's bad. Now, were you Annie or the gun? I was the bullet. Oh, as we know from Hamilton, one of the key characters mm-hmm. in any musical is the bullet. The bullet. The boulet. I was the boulet. Any hoozles. You know what rhymes with boulet? Hearsay. <laughs> and this is a story about hearsay. Can I make one quick anecdote before you start? I wish very, you would. It's very brief. Do it. Give me the pelican brief. Fresca is back in cans, motherfucker. When did it leave? Did LBJ? I thought LBJ's will said that Fresca had to continue. Fresca has continued, but there is an aluminum shortage because of COVID-19. And Coke, who I believe bottles Fresca, couldn't even get their hands on enough aluminum to continue Fresca production in cans. So it has been relegated to two liters and like the smaller plastic bottles for a while. And those you could barely even get because they were always sold out at my grocery stores. And I walked in the grocery store today and there was Fresca cans. Of all the ways COVID is just wrecking shit right and left, how is there an aluminum shortage? Aluminium. Okay, throwing in the extra liquid you was just excessive. (laughs) Elena, that was too much. Don't mock the British. They do enough to mock themselves. We're going to rag on the British Empire shortly. Don't worry about it. Oh, thank God. Okay. This, as I said before, is a story about hearsay. Mm -hmm. The names, the stories, the very subject of this episode have been deedled betwixt lips, ears, chisels, and stone over the centuries and taken the final form I will present to you today. 
this could be a story about love, about one of the greatest empires of ancient civilization, of Eastern engineering innovations that predated the advancements of the Western world by centuries. This is a story about kings and slaves, gods and madness. This week, we dive into the legacy of one of the greatest antagonists of the B-I-B-L-E, King Nebuchadnezzar II and the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. What was real and what was fake news? I don't know who I was impersonating. It was supposed (laughs) to be Trump. (laughs) Impossible to impersonate. I had the hand gesture, but that doesn't work on a podcast anyway. Alec Baldwin's retired from impersonating him, and now no one can. Yeah, no. Let's let's hang that up. I was thinking about that when we get when we get ready to do the biopics. I'm just not ready for that many impressions of that. No, no, I don't want it. I don't no. want it for years. I don't want it. So one thing's for sure: the man at the center of today's episode has a name that you'll always remember after you forget it at least twenty times. You ready? Just don't ask me to spell it, please. It's, you're reading it. I, you know what's funny? You know why, you know how you know that he's maybe not the greatest? Why? What's in the middle of his name? Chad. Bad. Oh. (laughs) Bad. That's not right. (laughs) We won't have you spell anything, Pumpkin. It's okay. Can I pronounce it Nebuchadnezzar from now on? I hope you will. Great. I hope you will. Great. Let's take a quick a quick look at the facty poos, as they say uh, amongst the Cambridge scholars. I believe Bembridge among, scholars. Among the Bembridge scholars. <laughs> quick look at the facty poos. Babylon is located fifty miles south of modern Baghdad in Iraq. The Kingdom of Babylon dates back to the third millennium BCE, but. It was during the 6th century BCE that the city of Babylon served as the capital city of the greater Mesopotamian area and, if you asked a Babylonian, the whole dang world. The empire had been founded by Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nabopolassar, after his victories at what? You better get ready for multiple quintosyllabic names. Zachary quintosyllabic names. <laughs> Of all of the of all of the Sams and the Joes and the where where are the Nebuchadnezzars today? All right, Nabopolassar, his daddy, gained victories over the Assyrian Empire. Therefore, that ushered us into this Neo-Babylonian era, and Nebuchadnezzar II would go on to even even greater conquests and victories, including the capture of Jerusalem in 597 BCE. We'll get there, but. As a connoisseur of before and after architecture and home renovation via Instagram, I say the greatest accomplishment of Nabucci was, see, I'm going to call him whatever I want, was the creation of the most impressive and glamorous metropolis the world had ever seen. The Ishtar Gate at the front of the city was built around 575 BCE with soaring towers and tiled depictions of animals, both real and imaginary. A 12-mile-long and six-story-high brick double wall surrounded the city, the largest ever built. And then, (laughs) shut up! (laughs) And then, rumor has it, he added the extensive pleasure gardens that would go on to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Maybe. So it's said. Not proven. Maybe. Let's put on our archaeological helmets and go digging! You ready, Elena? Ready. This is If These Walls, an archaeology podcast. <laughs> podcast? I got, I got, I went over the top with it. Oh my God. We got to start one called Hodge Podcast, right? And it's just like a Hodge Pod, Podge of just crap. Call it po- just call it Podcast. All right. That's the next one. Archaeology. Systematic archaeological excavations began at ancient Babylon in 1899, a CE. And although many ancient structures, such as the double walls and the Ishtar gate, have been found, there's no trace of the gardens, yo. A promising find of 14 vaulted rooms during excavations of the South Palace of Babylon turned out 
after tablets were subsequently discovered on the spot and deciphered to be nothing more than storerooms, mm. albeit large one, the cube smart of the Babylonian Empire. Oh, nice. Another series of excavations much nearer the river and a part of another king's palaces have revealed large drains, walls, and what could have been a reservoir. All necessary irrigation features for the gardens, but not proof positive of the fabled lost wonder. So aside from the silence of archaeology, significantly, no Babylonian sources mention the gardens either, their constructions or their existence, even in a ruined state. So this is perhaps the most damning evidence against the gardens having been at Babylon because surviving Babylonian records, that was really hard to say, surviving Babylonian records include comprehensive descriptions of Nebuchadnezzar's achievements and construction projects right down to the street names of Babylon, but no gardens. So where does the garden myth come from? Oh, we'll get there because it's there. There were a giant green utopia in the ancient world. This is exactly where it would be, right? Right. Fancy, fancy fun gardens originated in this particular juncture of the Tigris Euphrates River Valley, aka the Fertile Crescent, aka the purported original location of the Garden of Eden. And if you ever want to see what some of these parks looked like, a relief panel from the North Palace of Ashurbanipal. I can. Oh, I said it right the first time. Ashurbanipal. Go me, circa 668 to 631 BC at Nineveh is on display in the British Museum, as is most of the collateral of this time period, because what looks and feels British but isn't everything in the everything British Museum. Everything in the British Museum. Stewards of history that maybe should have asked permission first. Okay. Bur- they're the hamburglers of history. Mm-hmm. But... Finds like this panel have fueled a few counter theories, specifically that the whole hanging gardens idea is just a mix up and that the fabled wonder was actually built in Nineveh by Sennacherib a century before Nebuchadnezzar was even born. And there's plenty of textual and archaeological evidence of gardens at Nineveh. And the city was sometimes even referred to as old Babylon. So like, I buy it. But. Just because there were gardens in Nineveh doesn't mean there weren't also massive gardens at Babylon. We're going to do a lot of this. Maybe, but maybe not. And there's a lot of people to blame for all this confusion. The reason this is all a big deal in the first place is that despite a lack of archaeological evidence, the legend is widely recorded by ancient writers, and there was a group agreement among ancient scholars that placed the Hanging Gardens of Babylon on the list of seven. Wonders of the ancient world. Yes, I got it. Got it. I was like, and seven? Well, it would have helped you if I finished writing that sentence, but I knew what it was. <laughs> What's in the box? <laughs> <laughs> the other six wonders all have archaeological and textual evidence supporting their existence. One of them, the Great Pyramids of Giza, still stand today. So what gives? Well... Legends are stories. Stories are for audiences, and since the original lists of wonders were compiled by either Greek writers or those writing for a Hellenistic audience, what would have more impressed a Greek person used to the dry, terraced hillsides of olive groves than a lush garden of exotica ingeniously irrigated in the impossibly hot climate of Iraq? And who better to have the credit for the construction than the Bruce Wayne of Mesopotamia? Oh, Let's get into old Nebuchadnezzar, shall we? Because every legend needs a hero and a villain, and depending on who you ask, Nebuchadnezzar II was both. So let's start with the facts. Nebuchadnezzar was born in 634 BCE in the region of Chaldea in the southeast of Babylonia. His name is actually Nabakaduru Usur, which is Nabu Preserve. How come I can say Nabakaduru Usur but can't say preserve? We'll find out later. Or won't we? You won't. You won't find it out. We won't. Uh, But his name meant Nabu, preserve my firstborn son. Hmm. Nabu the god, not to be confused with the exploded planet, home to Amidala. Hold me like you did on Nabu. Sorry. Aww. That's a stupid line. Um, It is a stupid line, but sorry. 
But in Cal- that's his name in Chaldean. Nebuchadnezzar is the name by which the Israelites of Canaan knew him from the Akkadian Nebuchadrezzar. So he was the eldest son of a Babylonian general in the Assyrian army, Nabu Apuluser, Nabu Protect My Son, better known as Nabuchodonosor. At this time, the Assyrian Empire still controlled the region, but the empire had just grown too big for their forces to maintain. So, in 627 BCE, when the Assyrians sent two of their representatives to take charge of Babylon, Nabopolassar said, no thanks, we're not interested, and sent them back home, and crowned himself king in 626. And that was it! That wasn't it. Of course it wasn't it. Oh, God, I thought we were done. No, 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 Uh, Because, I mean, (laughs) it was a fairly congenial beginning to the end of an era. So for the next 10 years, Lil Nebi received a master class in military matters and government administration from his dad. Nabopolassar fortified their own defenses and began his conquests to claim more land from Assyria, because that's what you have to do if you name yourself king. Mm Mm-hmm. In 615, 10 years after all this business began, Nabopolassar attacked the city of Asher, but was unable to take it until the Medes, citizens of modern Arand, Arand? Arand. And Iran. <laughs> Arand. I'm sorry. <laughs> Under their king, Zyaxeres joined the resistance and Asher fell. Nabopolassar had then entered into alliance with Syaxeres and confirmed it with the marriage of Nebuchadnezzar to Syaxeres' daughter, Amatis. Alayda, do you hear that sound? Oh, the, there it is. Yeah. Yeah, because this is where you put in an alarm. Yep. There. There it is. There's the alarm. It's time for an If These Walls Innovations in Military Strategy Moment. Sponsored by Heineken. <laughs> it's not sponsored by Heineken. Have you ever it's... drank in a Heineken? Drinking? Drinking. Clearly you have tonight. Ever. Well. <laughs> uh. Okay. So, Saxe of the Mideast is credited as being the first military leader to divide troops into archers, spearmen, and cavalry. Hmm. I didn't wow. know that it was that long. Right, right, right. Impressive. Definitely changed the game for how wars are fought. Yeah. So let's talk about the consolidation and restoration of Babylon and how one might assume that gardens could be in this awesome big ass place and why Nebuchadnezzar was in charge of everything he was into. And then we just get into the we get into the Hebrew people later, I promise. So Nebuchadnezzar had formed his empire through conquest by 616, 10 years after he said, I'm king, fuck you, this is mine. Upon ascending to the throne, Nebuchadnezzar spoke to the gods in his inaugural address. O oh, merciful Marduk, may the house that I have built endure forever. May I be satiated with its splendor, attain old age therein with abundant offspring, and receive therein tribute of the kings of all regions from all mankind. And his patron god, Marduk, said, I could do that. Nebuchadnezzar II drew on the resources of his dad and father-in-law to strengthen and enlarge his armed forces, as well as engage in building projects. He absorbed all of the former regions of the Assyrian Empire and crushed whatever resistance was offered. In 598, or maybe 597 BCE, what what difference does a year make? He marched on the kingdom of Judah in Canaan and destroyed its capital city of Jerusalem. So that year did make a difference. I am so sorry. <laughs> Sending the elite citizens of the city, and this is important, back to Babylon. This was a period known as the Babylonian captivity, documented in the book of Daniel. But see, he's smart. He's not dumb like people think, you know? Fredo. 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 Anyway. Where the Assyrians got it wrong, but the Babylonians got it right, was right here. In order to conquer and hold a kingdom, you remove the leaders and make the citizens of the working class, who then work the lands and the millenaries and whatever it is that makes that particular kingdom so valuable, you leave them there. So you have a strong, healthy, and loyal region to add to your empire. 
Right. You take the elites, you bring them back to your capital and captivity so you can reap the benefits of their knowledge and their wealth without pissing off the working class back at their homeland and having totally cut off the head of the nation. Again, Nebuchadnezzar was the bossest boss of all time. But, Lainey, you know a thing or two about the Israelites. How, 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 how do they feel about being captured? No? Not okay. a big fan. Not a big fan. All right. But yeah, I don't like that. So, so further resistance by Judah resulted in another round of military campaigns. They had to go squash some riots where they're like, no, we don't like this. Bring back our people and some more things. Unfortunately, with the additional military campaigns, they ended up having to reduce the kingdom down even further and scatter the populace. When the Canaanite city of Tyre finally fell to a lengthy siege in 585 BCE, Nebuchadnezzar had consolidated his complete empire. So he had his own position as the best king ever to establish and maintain. So he set out to do this as Mesopotamian kings had done for 2,000 years before him. By bringing in rapper and television personality, exhibit to pimp his kingdom. Is exhibit okay these days? I think so. I think he's fine. Put a a fish tank in the trunk because that's, you know, functional and necessary. Absolutely. Why would I go anywhere without my beta fish? I'm an alpha. (laughs) He's my beta, yo. I need him with me. I can't be an alpha without my beta. Oh, boy. By 600 BCE, Babylon was so impressive, it was considered the center of the world, certainly by the Babylonians themselves and seemingly by others. A clay tablet dating to this time presents the ancient world revolving around Babylon. In presenting a view of the world, any map at the same time presents a worldview, an ordered set of assumptions and attitudes. So this one, with its breezy metrocentricism, is apparently unquestioning assumption that Babylon was the hub at the heart of things, and it speaks volumes for the self-confidence of the city. The great temples and monuments had new bells and whistles added. The new infrastructure was added to make the entire city accessible, hey, forward-thinking. And of course, special attention was given to the creation of the processional way for the festival of Marduk. The road was... This road was 70 feet wide and ran from the Temple of Marduk in the heart of the city out through the Ishtar Gate to the north, a considerable distance of over half a mile in length with walls rising over 50 feet on either side. These were decorated with over 120 images of lions, dragons, bulls, and flowers in gold. Did a little bit of background research on why this had to be a thing, this essentially giant canal on top of dry land. Mm -hmm. Uh, during the procession of Marduk, they take the giant ass golden statue out of the temple and walk it to the gate of Ishtar. Ooh, how much that way? A lot. (laughs) A lot. A lot. It's big. (laughs) It's very, very big. In fact, if you want a description of it, you can read it in the book of Daniel. Um, Among other things, they actually do, and by they, I mean Daniel himself, who is the author. Um, He didn't, go on to describe the gardens of Babylon because other people did it for him, but he did do a good job describing some of just the magnitude of the structures in the city. And it's kind of fascinating to see regardless of their take on what kind of person Nebuchadnezzar was and their attitude towards the Babylonians in general, there still is this documentation of the reality of what life was back then. You can't really fudge geography and building structure. No. Nebuchadnezzar himself left an inscription on the walls. That's right. He graffiti tagged it. Dis- do you- yeah, kitty! Sorry. Who she heard that? She got scared. Pfizer. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I should have named my cat Nebuchadnezzar. You absolutely should. Um, Nebuchadnezzar left himself an an inscription on the walls describing them and his reason for creating them, which reads, in part, how he had the gates made. Okay, so this is a new, this is Nebuchadnezzar. He's a new character, right? No, you already gave his inaugural speech. Oh, I thought that was his dad. No, that was him. Okay, okay. 
of bricks with blue stone on which wonderful bulls and dragons were depicted, I covered their roofs by laying majestic cedars lengthwise over them. I hung doors of cedar adorned with bronze at the gate openings. I placed wild bulls and ferocious dragons in the gateways and thus adorned them with luxurious splendor that people might gaze on them in wonder. This performance by Sir John Keelgood, sponsored by Heineken. The walls of Babylon and the Ishtar Gate were considered so impressive that some ancient writers claimed they should have been included on the list of the Seven Wonders. But Babylon was included on that list for a different attraction. The Hanging Gardens. Now, again, they are the only one of the Seven Wonders whose existence is disputed because there's just no archaeological evidence. And further, the only known reports of them come from after Babylon's fall. Even more significantly, the famous East India House inscription, a peon of praise written by Nebuchadnezzar himself, boasting of his beautification of the city, makes no mention of the Hanging Gardens. Hmm. You'd think he'd put it in there. I mean, he feel, it feels like he would, based on how I understand him as the character that I am currently playing, yes. I feel like he wouldn't be shy to describe them. Oh, no, 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 no. Honestly, it's like... Here's the thing, Braggadocio. He he earned it. He's got that swagger. Yeah. Looks like this because he can back it up. Yeah. Okay. So the first message... The first mention in an ancient source of the gardens is by Barossus of Kos. It's actually a priest named Belusuru from Babylon who relocated to the Greek island. He wrote in 290 BCE, a full 300 years later. His work survives only as quoted excerpts in that of later writers, so not even his original texts. But many of his descriptions of Babylon have been corroborated by archaeology. Barassus describes high stone terraces, which imitated mountains, and which were planted with many, many types of large trees and flowers. Terraces would not have only been created a as a pleasant aesthetic effect for hanging vegetation, but also made their irrigation easier. So she's plausible. Well, that's why I was going to, I figured we would get to it, but I wanted to know why it's the hanging gardens. And you mm-hmm. just answered that. You just answered it. Abs- oh, we're going to, we're going to get even deeper into that. That's what she said. Uh, Barassus also explains why the gardens were established to make a wife of the Babylonian king a midi called Amethyst, who was his wife, feel less homesick for her green and hilly homeland of Persia. Alas, there are no references of a queen by that name in Babylonian records, only that they were initially married, not that she was an actual queen. He mm. had multiple wives. Mm. We'll get As it. you do. As you do. As one does. So let's go over to Herodotus. I remember Herodotus. Yeah, it's a 5th century BCE Greek historian. And he described the irrigation system of Babylon and the walls, but does not mention any garden specifically. Although the Great Sphinx is also missing from his description of Giza, so it's not like he hasn't overlooked things before. Well, it's, it's, not, it's not like it's huge and, you know, obvious. You could miss it, I'm saying. But he goes on to corroborate some of Strabo's... Um, well, he technically wrote first, so... It's more like Strabos corroborated what Herodotus said. Anyway, Greek geographer Strabo describes the location of the gardens as by the Euphrates, which ran through Babylon, and a complicated machinery of screws, Archimedes screws, which drew water up from the river and into water the gardens, similar to how Herodotus described this engineering marvel that irrigated the hanging gardens. However, you'll notice that these screws are called Archimedes screws and are credited to Archimedes, who lived centuries after Nebuchadnezzar. You could get hung up on that. However, if you think about how we tend to categorize and name innovations after a lot of Western figures, just because that's what we're drawing on, but then you go over to other civilizations and you see a parallel evolution or parallel innovations across time, 
It's not crazy that someone in Babylon might have invented the Archimedes screw concept before Archimedes actually got there. Because physics is physics, no matter what you name it. I don't care what you say. There has got to be an entry on UrbanDictionary.com about the Archimedes screw being some kind of sexual move. And I'm going to look it up. I'm positive it. You know what? Please do. Okay. And if it's not, uh, we will take suggestions from listeners and we will submit on your behalf. The Archimedes screw. The Archimedes screw. If it involves an owl, I will call PETA on your ass. We will not accept that. Strabo also mentions the presence of stairs to reach the various levels. Seven kilometers long, in places 10 meters thick and 20 meters high, and regularly punctuated by even taller towers. The author P. Jordan suggests that the gardens made it to the establishment uh, to the established list of seven wonders of the ancient world because they appealed for sheer luxurious and romantic perversity of endeavor as in there was no need for them to exist in that way but they were so big and so lush gosh we're all really impressed down here Now we will get into the most explicitly described passage regarding the makeup and existence of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Diodorus, around 90 to 30 BCE, in his work Bibliotheca Historica, wrote this. Before I speak this, this is the longest monologue that I think I have ever been assigned. It's quite long, but this is a chunky boy. Can I get like a personality description for Diodorus so that I know how to, I need, I need some character backstory. I need something you can maintain for Diodorus, big old nerd. He is, uh, this is book two, chapter 10 of Bibliotheca Historica. Also, his name is Diodorus and I hear Doris and I think Eudora as in Samantha from Bewitched Mother. So... There was also, because the Acropolis, the Hanging Garden, as it is called, which was built not by Semiramis, but by a later Syrian king, to please one of his concubines. For she, they say, being a Persian by race and longing for the meadows of her mountains, asked the king to imitate, through the artifice of a planted garden, the distinctive landscape of Persia. The park extended four plethora on each side, and since the approach to the garden sloped like a hillside, and the several parts of the structure rose from one another tier on tier, the appearance of the whole resembled that of a theater. When the ascending tier... That's like one sentence. The appearance of the whole resembled that of a theater. That's what she said. Your body is a wonderland, your whole is a theater. (laughs) All right, all right, Diodorus. <laughs> when the ascending terraces had been built, there had been constructed beneath them galleries, which carried the entire weight of the planted garden and rose little by little one above the other along the approach. And the uppermost gallery, which was 50 cubits high, bore the highest surface of the park, which was made level with the circuit walls of the battlements of the city. Furthermore, the walls, which had been constructed at great expense, were 22 feet thick while the passageway between each two walls was ten feet wide. The roofs of the galleries were covered over with beams of stone, sixteen feet long, inclusive of the overlap, and four feet wide. The roof above these beams had first a layer of reeds laid in great quantities of bitumen over this, two courses of baked brick, bonded by cement, and as a third layer, a covering of lead to the end that the moisture from the soil might not penetrate beneath. On all this again, earth had been piled to a depth significant for the roots of the largest trees, and the ground, which was leveled off, was thickly planted. (laughs) I don't know why thickly planted got me. With trees of every kind that by their great size or any other charm could give pleasure to beholder 
And since the galleries each projecting beyond another all received the light, they contained many royal lodgings of every description. And there was one gallery which contained openings leading from the topmost surface and machines for supplying the garden with water. The machines raising the water in great abundance from the river, although no one outside could see it being done. <sighs> you did amazing. Thank that you. That was so great, sweetie. Thank you. And also, so here's the thing. That was incredibly thoroughly descriptive. Yeah. It enwrapped, it, it covered everything said by other ancient historians as well as in its mention of uh the compartments the the royal palace compartments that were stuck into the terraces along the side match up with the archaeological find later which they determined to be storage units however you could see where there's some truth rooted in the possibility of how it could exist the mechanisms by which water were drawn and the general structure of the city itself so you'd have to think how much fucking opium was Diodorus on that he was sitting in a library just making shit up? Oh, thank you for saying that, because I really did feel that. It's it's like, are you just saying, you know what would have been great? This. And like he is he's the biggest dungeon master writing oh, out the people. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's what this was? Do you think yes. that's why we have the Hanging Gardens of Babylon? Yes. It's the original Dungeons and Dragons? 100 percent Fuck. So, for a point of clarification, Diodorus refers to a Syrian king at the top of that giant monologue that you just gave us beautifully. Thank you. Syrian king is following the Greek tradition of referring to Mesopotamia as Assyria in general. But it may also be because he was describing the gardens in the Assyrian city of Nineveh instead of Babylon. Remember? Because as I said, what feels like hours ago, the Assyrian king Sennacherib made Nineveh the jewel of the Assyrian empire a full two centuries prior to Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Nineveh had a whole butt ton of parks and gardens. So based on this and on the distance in time between Nebuchadnezzar II's reign and reports of the hanging gardens we just read together, there's another log on the hanging gardens of Nineveh fire. But I'm going to say but so many times. <laughs> How many Even, more times, though? I guess we'll find out. <laughs> Click to subscribe. Even though no physical evidence of the Hanging Gardens has been found at Babylon, there is no reason to believe that Nebuchadnezzar would not or could not have built them there. Scholar Paul Krowetz. Wow, it's the Polish name I can't pronounce. Mm-hmm. Krowacic. Krowacic. Scholar Paul Krawacic notes, Nebuchadnezzar marks the city's regained status by raising it to its greatest prominence ever. He made it the largest, most splendid, and in some eyes, the most glamorous city the world had ever seen. Unfortunately for Babylon's reputation, the most widely read source on the city and its king had one hell of a bone to pick. And the Hebrew scribes responsible for the narratives of the Bible didn't make any mention of any hanging gardens. Hmm. They did, however, have plenty to say about the temples and the statues dedicated to Marduk, among some choice words about Nebuchadnezzar's political tactics. So while we're on the topic of hearsay, let's listen to what the Bible has to say. And I am a Christian, but I will still parallel this right now. I am considering the book of Daniel's take on Nebuchadnezzar to be the Fox news of this time. Oh boy. It is hoited and we'll get a little bit into why Nebuchadnezzar the second had orchestrated the so-called captivity of the Jews following the destruction of the kingdom of Judah. So unsurprisingly, the Hebrew scribes had no love for him or his city. And this is because no matter how diplomatic your methods for conquest are, You can't reconcile cultural differences at the end of the day. You are absolutely going to step on some major toes however you go about things. And while Nebipu didn't wholesale slaughter the children of God, he done goofed. The Jews of the 6th century BCE, like many ancient peoples, believed that their God resided in the temple dedicated to him. When Nebuchadnezzar II destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, he literally destroyed the house of God. 
Judaism, again, like other religious belief systems, was based on an understanding of quid pro quo. That was my Trump again. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. It's a terrible impression. Okay. Well, I have done nothing but support you all night. <laughs> so <laughs> that being said, he's a terrible man. So I don't think you need to spend one more moment thinking about it. Quid pro quo, um, which is this for that in which the people paid homage to their God and that the God provided for and protected the people. So when the temple was destroyed and then the rest of the kingdom and the people carried off to a foreign land, some explaining had to be done and had to be found by the priestly class to explain why all this bad stuff could happen to them. The conclusion reached by the Jewish clergy was that previously they had been led astray by other gods and beliefs and had not paid enough attention to the soul worship of Yahweh. In the era known as the Second, second Temple Period, which is circa 515 to about 70, uh, 515 BCE to 70 CE. Judaism was, Judaism was revised in light of the Babylonian captivity to focus on monotheistic belief and practice. And at the same time, the narratives which would become their scriptures were edited to fit this new focus. Babylon is routinely characterized as a city of sin and evil, and Nebuchadnezzar II appears in the book of Daniel as a stubborn tyrant who recognizes the power of Daniel's God but will not submit to him until he is literally driven insane and then restored. In Daniel chapters one through four, Nebuchadnezzar is witness to the power of Daniel's God when three Jewish youths, three youths, Shadrach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I remember them. Yeah. How could you not? Rakshak and Benny. Yes. Oh my God. See, that's okay. So when I first hear Nebuchadnezzar, I picture the giant cucumber that is Mr. Nezzar in his chocolate bunny factory. Oh, wow. That's just brought back a whole slew of weird memories. All right. I know that song by heart still. And I will give a shout out to the creators at VeggieTales for a story about idol worship and burning people in a fire. They do a really good job of getting that exact message across in a very child-friendly way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they also t- kind of talk about union rights as factory workers. All right. All right. All right, all right. Shout out to VeggieTales. Anyway. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to worship the golden idol the king has created and decreed that all should bow before as it marches along its little processional. Yes, we are talking about Marduk. So, Nebuchadnezzar has them thrown in the furnace like you do. Mm-hmm. But they're saved through their face. Through, through, <laughs> saved through their face. They are saved through their faith and emerge unharmed. You can read about this in Daniel chapter three, as well as a solid banging rap verse. That is the song of the three men. That's right. They document what they proposedly, proposedly, purportedly said in those flames. And it is a full Bohemian Rhapsody. Hmm. Quite a lot that they had to say while they were in there. The God of the Israelites also grants Daniel the ability to interpret dreams, and he displays his, this skill for the king in rightly interpreting his vision of the tree, seen in Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 24. This leads into the most dramatic event for Nebuchadnezzar. A voice comes down from heaven declaring that he will shortly go insane. Nebuchadnezzar is said to have been driven away from men and did eat grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until hairs grew like the feathers of eagles and his nails like birds' claws. This madness lasted for seven years, just as the voice from heaven predicted, and the king's sanity is restored and gives he gives praise to God. So this is a fascinating narrative, but there's no outside corroboration for the story of the madness or any particular stubborn streak. It is, however, important to note that while it may not have been documented, these do seem like very poetic descriptions of potentially a disease that would have been common at the time. Mm-hmm. Not full on leprosy, but if we're talking about scaly skin, maybe losing a finger or two, sweats, being moved away from men. Also, it could have just been that he went vegan for a bit. Yeah. 
turns your bones yellow and hollow like a bird. It is not surprising that a people who felt they had been victimized by this king should depict him negatively in their narratives. But this does not mean that those narratives are historically accurate. But the latter half of Daniel, the famous Sunday school classic Daniel in the lion's den, goes on to accurately note the fall of King Belshazzar, who's a hop in the skip down the line from Nebuchadnezzar, to the invading Persian forces of the future King Darius. Darius Rucker. Daniel in the lion's den. Not the adult bookstore. That is actually an interesting story about Daniel Day-Lewis and his road to (laughs) self-discovery. Daniel in the lion's den is now available on (laughs) Blu-ray. Oh, I'd watch that so hard. (laughs) Do you have a Daniel Day-Lewis thing? I do. Do you not? No. He Uh -uh. contains multitudes. Yeah, I can see that. I want to fuck all of them. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Back to the Bible. Side note. Daniel chapter 6 takes a minute to describe the transition of government when Darius took over the throne of Babylon. So if you want to read up on a pretty solid system for transitioning power while preserving the integrity of a major empire, kaboom, there it is. And I genuinely mean that. It goes it it goes into how they split up and and uh, kept some governing officials in place because it's like you know you know these people you know this land I'm going to give you a title and you're going to lead the shit. If only there was a modern day uh, event that you could equate that to, right? To make sure that you prioritize the health of the nation during a transition of power. Yeah. 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 So despite a scathing review from the chosen people, Nebuchadnezzar II in other sources is depicted as a great guy who not only restored Babylon to its former glory, but transformed it into a city of light. Under his reign, Babylon became a city which was not only stunning, but also a center for the arts and intellectual, intellectual, intellectual pursuits. Yep. (laughs) Women enjoyed equal rights with men under Nebuchadnezzar's rule. Schools and temples were plentiful and literacy, mathematics, the sciences, and craftsmanship flourished along with a tolerance of and interest in other gods of other faiths and the beliefs of other cultures. Make Babylon intellectual again. Oh my God, I love that. Oh, you can buy those hats on our merch site. Uh, www.ifthesewallsmerch.com. In many ways, the ceramic map now available on ifthesehats.com depicting Babylon as the center of the world was accurate. Nebuchadnezzar II envisioned a city in which people ever after would view in wonder and then made that vision of reality. He died peacefully in the city after he had built, uh, he died peacefully in the city he had built after a reign of 43 years, but Babylon would not last even another 25 after his death. The city fell to the Persians in 539 BCE and later efforts to restore it by Alexander the Great never quite elevated it to the heights it had known under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar II. So maybe there was a garden of some sort of Babylon and its scale became exaggerated. Maybe not. Archaeology is many things, but expedient, it ain't. So maybe time will tell. If anything, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon are the supreme example of why the idea of the Seven Wonders was created in the first place. A short list, a short list of truly wonderful human endeavors, which few would ever see for themselves, but nevertheless, still stimulated wonder, discussion, and emulation. I never thought of that before. So of the Seven Wonders of the Ancient World, we only actually see one. Right. The, the pyramids at Giza. And everything else is is never been seen with the modern human eye. You can see um, where it was. There's more archaeological evidence that they existed. Um, the other ones are the statue of Zeus at Olympia, 
the temple of Artemis uh, at Ephesus, which is just ruined now, but you, the outline is still there. Okay. Um, the mausoleum at Halicarnassus, the Colossus of Rhodes and the lighthouse of Alexandria. So yeah. these were all proven to be in existence, but just have been destroyed. Interesting. There's also a really great underrated Fleetwood, maybe it's not underrated, Fleetwood Mac song called Seven Wonders that's on the Tango in the Night album. Highly recommend, love it. One of my favorite Stevie songs. Is it based on the Seven Wonders of the Ancient World or the Modern World? I'm going to say it's probably modern. Okay. Because we did talk about one of the modern ones. That's Machu Picchu. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they they split Seven Wonders of the Modern World. You can go see all of these. Right. Great Wall, Christ the Redeemer in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, which is the giant Jesus going, hey, to everybody. Uh, Machu Picchu in Peru, Chichen Itza, um, which for the longest time when I was a child and I was first being introduced to the concept of Chichen Itza, I was convinced they had fried chicken. It just seemed like a, that's the name of a place that would have good fried chicken. Yeah. Chichen Itza. The Roman Colosseum, the Taj Mahal, and Petra in Jordan. Hmm. Okay. So when uh, when COVID lets up, we will be hosting guided tours through the seven wonders of the modern world. We want to get as many eyeballs and accounts on of them as possible so that you can steward that history forward and that we can know years and years and years from now without a question that all seven of them actually existed and we won't have another fucking hanging stupids of Boobalon again because we can't add... Uh, I was very frustrated. You can pre-register for this, this uh, all-inclusive tour at ifthesehats.gov today. Slash Deutsch. Slash Deutsch. (laughs) (laughs) I hope it's not a porn site. Yeah. It makes me, we should do, I, you just opened a whole new, uh, like to me, I, I wasn't even thinking about the Bible before. I can open your eyes. Um, well, because here's the thing with the Bible. Um, spew, uh, lead into my rant on religion, which really isn't a rant. Um, as I have said, and as we have said before, I identify as Christian. I grew up in a household where we went to church once a week. My parents taught Sunday school. And then I also went to a parochial school system. I am a big advocate for, advocate of raising kids with access to um, which, whichever direction you go, some, some form of organized religion. Cause I think it's so intrinsic to the human experience to be part of this cultural collective. Uh, I also think that there is no hope for any of us getting through this giant blueberry of doom that we're on without some kind of spiritual connection. Um, that being said, the Bible itself, anytime someone utterly dismisses it because like, Oh, that's a religious text. Yes, it is a religious text. It is also a documentation of history in its own. It is a historical book. And like the story of Nebuchadnezzar, yes, there are pieces where it's like, okay, well, that's up for interpretation. Also, this might be you are a little butthurt. So you're skewing what your treatment was like based on your feelings about Nebuchadnezzar. However, at the same time, they do document accurately geography, lineage, uh, wars are accurately documented. Um, and cultural and sometimes natural, natural phenomena. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to do an, if these walls episode on that in that turned out Mary and Joseph, because it's oh, like, the, the, it's the like red roof, the red roof. Yeah. Because it's like the, uh, oh, I, I thought it was a La Quinta. Sorry. No. Is that racist? No. All right. It's a, uh, is it the Zachary okay. Quinta? Can we get around to the actual point of my joke, which was I was going to equate it to the producers that passed on the music producers that passed on the Beatles, but that's been ruined. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) I heard that when Jesus was born, they got on top of the manger and that was the last time they performed live and they actually got a noise complaint that shut it down. The Beatles? That manger was called Abbey Road. (laughs) (laughs) And that is how I am stewarding that history. You're stewarding it wrong. Don't tell me how to do things. Okay. So this was, I I think we did a giant uh, centuries long 
look at how you can carry on stories because if you, we one of the seven wonders of the ancient world may have been entirely folklore. Yeah, we're here to share stuff with you, and it may not be true, but shrug. Is that why you listened in the first place? No, I'm answering for them. Thank you. Uh, well, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. That's Great. all we go- got for right now. You can go to if these walls dot ca. No, if these hats dot ca. This is the part where we're supposed to, to tell them. Oh, where actual to go. things. All right, you can't actually go to if these walls dot com. Uh, that is the thing. But you can also go to if the follow us on Instagram at if these walls pod and email if these walls pod at gmail dot com. Tell us who your favorite biblical figure is and. Uh, maybe we'll tell you a story about them. Mine's the whale. <laughs> Mine's the chick that found Moses in the basket on the river. Cause I oh, always she- thought, I always thought she was kind of like so pretty. Cause she was really pretty in the kids version of the Bible that I had. So <laughs> I'm only into Christianity for the hot women. <laughs> Audrey, that's on that note. You can find uh, us on Fish. (laughs) That's it. Okay, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Bye. Bye. (laughs) I'm going to hell. The Christianity for the hot women. Thank you.